Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting Podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 28 and we have Dan Weston joining the show. Dan started out not as a sports better but playing poker online. Following the changes in the poker world, Dan concentrated on sports and is the man behind tennis ratings. Dan uses statistical analysis to trade on tennis markets all around the world and provides premium content on his website, tennisratings.co.uk. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. The Betfair exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Dan Weston. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Weston. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, Jake. How you doing? Looking forward to this. So, Daniel, let's sort of get stuck into your background a little bit. Do you remember when your first bet was or when you sort of started <laughs> getting involved in betting? Well, um, it depends which way you look at it, really, um, in terms of an exact bet. So, I guess, like, the first, like, edge that I worked out was when I was about, probably before I was 10 years old. And... Um, Used to go to the pier with with um, my parents sometimes when when grandparents lived in seaside towns and uh, worked out how to beat a couple of the uh, the fruit machines on the pier and also there was a, there was a horse game that you could play you could bet on the horses but there was a big bug in the software but whereby you could wait until halfway through the race before you could put a bet on so. Uh, 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 maybe 10 years old or something like that I worked out how to beat them and uh, although the jackpots weren't great I, I was delighted to come away with like 15 20 pounds profit uh, 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 in a short space of time at that age was 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 like was like I felt like a millionaire you know um and funny enough um later on in my life when I when I left university or sort of the, around there uh, towards the end of my university degree I learned how to play slots properly and that was my real first introduction to sort of full-time gambling. So through high school and university, were you at all focused on betting? Were you betting, you know, on weekends or in your spare time? Or were you just a regular student then and it was somewhere in the back of your mind that one day you might get into it? No, I never really had a plan to do it. I, I used to like it because like, I felt like I felt like I, want, I would be able to exploit markets, if that makes sense. But, I mean... I came. I came really from when I was like eighteen, nineteen. I had like no no background in it at all. Um, I was doing a degree in accounting, so I guess I guess I was pretty pretty numbers orientated even from an early age. And um, I used just to go to to bookies and bet horses and football and stuff. But really small stakes, you know, like just because obviously I was a student, I couldn't afford much, and um, didn't really do very well. Made a lot of obviously the mistakes that that a lot of newbies 
he's make like you know betting on accumulators and and stuff on a regular basis which obviously never really came up and on the racing i was betting on like the um place pot and stuff which which i didn't really understand the how here yeah, how much the authorities take out of it from a from a, a profit margin perspective so I, I i lost a bit but small stakes you know i was a student and then i met a guy who showed me how to play machines and kind of went from there really and i just from that onwards i, I didn't i wasn't interested in the you know betting on football and stuff because there was the fruit machines in the betting shop so i could make money on them instead <laughs> so when well you say it. playing machines i assume you mean slot machines or poker machines yeah, they're slot machines. They don't really have poker machines so much in, in the UK. Um, so basically, like in UK, uh, at one well, at that stage, each bookmaker has two fruit machines in, and like pubs would have anything from like one to five or six machines in each pub. The majority of pubs would have them, and um, so you, you can only play like a certain range of them, like maybe twenty five percent of the ones that are on the market. But obviously. If there's like, I mean, I went to university in Canterbury, so there was like fifty pubs in the, within like a mile of the t- in this in the city centre. So it doesn't take you long to work out like which pubs have got the right machines to play in, and then you you've got a head start straight away, basically. So in theory, those machines are, I guess, constructed to pay out less than you know a positive amount for the better. Is that what happens, or is there some way yeah, to beat them? In that's in exactly theory? it. So generally, like. They have a set percentage, it's just seventy-eight percent, or or around those ballparks. And um, so, obviously, in theory, people will say, "Oh well, if I if I if I put a hundred pounds and I should get seventy-eight pounds out." Well, it doesn't really work like that because there's massive short-term and uh, fluctuations in 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 the percentage. So a machine might need to to recoup percentage, which means it will take money off the the gambler. Uh, or it may may need to 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 get back to its target percentage, so it will give a short term boost to the player. And technically, the the methodology would be that you would be able to identify the situations where the machine was in a position where it would need to give money to the player, and then you could you'd play it until you realised that the machine was no longer in that situation. Okay. Um, so it works on a like the target percentage works on a lot longer basis. So you might have like if you put like ten thousand in, you might you'd get seven thousand eight hundred out if you played it pretty optimally. But but over the short term, it was much more wildly fluctuating. So what about university? You mentioned accounting. Did you study accounting or finance, or did you do something yeah. else there? Yeah, accounting and finance. I graduated with some savings, which was you know it's positive. Not many students can do that based on my my machine income and then i was gonna get a job with a firm of accountants uh probably um like you know one of the just just a graduate training program i applied for quite a few of them but the competition was was really really tough like just even at the, the recruitment days there'd be like 50 people competing for like several jobs and that's and that's yeah, you know, they're only just to get to recruitment day was actually a pretty decent achievement in a lot of these, a lot of these companies. And whilst I was trying to get a job, um, I was still playing machines like um, whenever I had time, and was still doing well. And jobs jobs weren't weren't easy to find. So um, I thought, well, I'll give machines a go. I said to myself, I've right, got six months to to see how it goes, and um, lost about ten years. Wow. Yeah, and then how did you transition from there to what you're doing now? Was it a 
I mean, you mentioned 10 years, but was it straight into it or did you try other sports? Uh, how did you land yeah, on was, tennis? What happened was then, like, machines, like, generally it was really decent and the variance was so low that you would pretty much go home winning, like, uh, close to average amount every single day. Um, so, but there was, it would go through stages where like the, the, the percentage of machines you could play would be fewer and it'd be harder to find the ones that you wanted to play. And, and it was, became a bit of a grind at times. And one of the guys that, that I knew from the circuit, uh, told me that the, um, one of his mates was, was making a ton of money playing online poker because like the other opponents were just really, really bad. So I, I bought a couple of books, um, didn't, yeah, probably learned some bad habits from reading the books because, the books primarily were focused upon like very uh, long structured tournaments as opposed to the cash games that I wanted to play online. Uh, but I found quite a few like, online resources in the end and pretty much taught myself from scratch how to play online poker and like watching, you know, high stakes players videos and, and you know, constructing the, how they construct their decisions forums and, just and then eventually I taught myself as well how to to use um, poker software. Like po I was using Poker Tracker at the time, and the heads up display was on there, and kind of taught myself how to work out who the bad players were and how their statistics managed to define their range of hands. And did pretty well playing online poker for for a few years, and then um, all of a sudden it went downhill fast because the US players got banned from depositing overnight they called it black friday and unfortunately only the bad players need to deposit so it left only the good players <laughs> and and um yeah it became a bit of much more of a grind and um everyone's sort of taking money all the regulars just taking money off the other regulars and um yeah it wasn't wasn't nearly as lucrative and then from there i, I decided to move into sports Interesting. So did you, when you were thinking about transitioning after Black Friday and, and spending a bit of time playing into those sort of tough, tough tables, I would imagine, what was your mindset? Were you thinking, you know, I want to get straight into tennis, I want to go to football, or what What were some of the thoughts in, in developing a plan after that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, of all, every t everything I try and do, I always try and have a, a future plan. That's sort of something that I've kind of put a lot of time into and generally it served me pretty well um so um with with that I, originally I, I looked at football primarily because like I, f I found that it was like easy to get a lot of data there were some good sites with with data on and also because as a fan I'm more into football as well um unfortunately I, I didn't I was a bit naive in the fact that I didn't really understand the fact that the, that there was or didn't I didn't know that there was people with like considerably more experience and resources than me um, who were able to to, to be? That was their they had a, they had the edge. I didn't have the edge, so I, you know I was a near net did not do too well at football. Um, but I was kind of still kind of playing machines a bit when 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 to eke out a living as well. So I didn't really have like a ton of financial pressure. Um, and then I I worked I, I worked out that there was some good statistical resources on tennis online as well. So then I set about building like a LO model. So basically, obviously, the 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 way that that works is that a player would be re receive more credit for for beating a a good player than they would a bad player. And I um I've, I built a model based on that, and that worked 
uh, really well for ATP, WTA, and in particular challengers, because at that point bookmakers were really, really bad at pricing challengers, and they were often slow to to react to market market movements as well. So my ROI in challengers was was really, really good compared compared to ATP and WTA it was great, um, but problem with that obviously is that it leads to account restrictions um even at that stage it wasn't that fast but it still happened eventually and um so therefore i moved into to more of a trading mindset i want to talk about building a model a lot of people will mm. send in questions about that or emails okay if you haven't built a model before you know people say oh i have my algorithm and i have my model or i run it through my computer what, what does that actually mean? Does it mean you know you can use an Excel spreadsheet and, and have a fair few variables and it can spit out a few numbers or ratings or things like that? Or is it much deeper than that and it requires a sophisticated computer program that requires an engineering background? Um, I, don't, I think it could be either, really. Um, I think that for, for, from my, my personal perspective, um, it would all be to do with what the inputs are. The inputs would have to be right. Uh, you could have the most expensive... Yeah, bells and whistles program that, that anyone could wish for. But if the inputs aren't right, you're still not going to yeah, come towards an accurate conclusion. So it's the inputs that are more key. I mean, my my, my spreadsheet skills are, are pretty rudimentary. Um, but I did a, did a course on it at university, which actually I'm quite grateful for now because it kind of at least I, at least I know how to use them to, to a certain degree. But I don't need much more than that. As long as I've got access to historical data, then 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 that's really much more important to me. So those, I think a lot of people. Yeah, sorry. So those getting started can you know not be necessarily afraid of oh you know how am I going to compete with all those other betters out there because they have all these models that have been developed over years and years and they're tweaking them. You know, some people talk about tweaking them every single day for a few hours to update. It doesn't need yeah, to be it, such it, a tough. I think now as well, like. That, that sort of thing is going to go more more out of the window because like machine learning is is, is becoming more and more advanced as well. So I'm sure that like some someone with uh, a lot of financial resources and a lot of uh, sort of programming skills could could teach teach an uh, uh, expensive program to to do that sort of thing automatically anyway. Um, no, I mean more more so is like I've got the model and basically then I I'll, I'll, I'll use that to define define prices and projected whole percentages and stuff like that but that's based on the inputs that i put into the model and then maybe during your off season i look at the model and see if there's any changes and maybe make some very small tweaks to it but it's not not on a re- not every single day that, I'll, that i would do that okay you mentioned the lo model for those who don't know what that is do you want to just take us through that and, and what that means yeah so basically um that was designed i think by a guy who used it in a chess context to start with and um Basically, it gives say say if you beat the world number one, look at it from a tennis context, right? So let's pick out a guy who's like averageish kind of player. So look at Carl Edmund, roughly ranked thirty, forty, fifty, roughly in the last year. Um, if he was to be Roger Federer, he would get more points on that system than if he be I don't know Nicolas Almagro, who's not nearly as highly rated as Federer. So a bigger win, a, a win against a better player would give you more credit and and therefore improve your rating, which I was then able to reflect as a price. So I'd have two rating, a rating for each player for each surface, and then I, that would convert into a price. 
I think they use that or that the that model as well for like stuff like video games and stuff like that, like online rankings. And I think it's been just quite widely spread now as a ranking system. And does that imply a higher upside or a higher ceiling for that player? What's the rationale? So basically, um, it would just be like a current rating at that particular time, which I would then wait for recency. So I did a bit of research about how how um, re- what sort of weighting you should put on on recent results compared to older results and there's there, i think there's a there's a a model that someone has got online commercial at the moment but from my experience he puts too much weighting on historical results so like he he rates overrates players like david ferrer for example who has declined significantly so the problem the problem with using older is really old results i'm talking especially over a year ago yeah is yeah. that it fails to take into account uh, considerable uh, improvements or, or declines in players. So if you've got a guy who's like in his mid to late, uh, you know, anything from sort of over 30 onwards, and he shows a, a decline in stats, then I would I would say that that's, that's likely to be pretty terminal, or, or at least he's going to be going close to his way out. There's very few players who can turn that around at, at that age. There's been a few, but on the whole, that doesn't happen. And and so basically, his results from two years ago I couldn't care less about because they're not relevant to his current situation. But then on the same side, you could say, well, okay, well, a younger player who's like 18, 19, 20, 21, players tend to do most of their improvement by the age of 22. Um, they, if you might want to look at more sort of, sort of six month data rather than twelve month data because of the fact that that they're improving quite quickly. But then you need to obviously make sure that their improvement isn't down to, to variance necessarily as opposed to, to being you know, an actual genuine, genuine improvement. A quick note from our friends at Betfair. Ready for a different way of thinking? Unlike other operators, Betfair wants you to win. On the Betfair Hub, you'll unlock market-leading insights, strategies, models, and more. Master the game within the game. And join today at betfair.com.au with promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So before we get to the betting stuff, I want to talk about some of the the information and I guess tennis analytics that you use. When I did a little bit of research and, and mm. wanted to understand more about tennis, I saw some of the things you were talking about and it's a, yep. a little bit different language with court speed and, and hold percentage and break percentage and stuff like that. What are some of the main ones that you use? Yeah, okay. So um, primarily you would want to look at a way of grading uh, players' uh, ability to hold serve, which would then translate into a price. Now you can use um, hold percentage and break percentage across the surface for the server and the returner. So obviously, if John Isner is playing against Ivo Karlovic, two massive servers, then you're going to want to take Karlovic's return tendencies into account when calculating Isner's whole percent likely whole percentage so obviously if if isn't playing nadal who's a much better returner than karlovic then his projected whole percentage will be considerably lower because he's playing against a player who's much better returner um so you take into into account that you could also look at service points one and return points one percentages as opposed to hold and break percentages as well um that's that's fine that's fine too regarding court speed I find that, that there's a lot of fallacies with court speed, and I still get into like, arguments with people a lot on social media about this type of thing. So I don't. With court speed, it's important to say I don't really care why a court is fast or slow, but generally that there's always the same tendencies as to why this occurs. So, for example, 
I'm looking when I say a quartz fast, I'm talking relatively based according to the mean. So, for example, let's look at uh, clay tournaments uh, played at altitude, for example, such as uh, in South America. There's there's um, tournaments on clay or hardcore in Quito and Bogota. They're played at extreme altitude, so the court the the conditions at that venue are very very fast because the air is thin and therefore it improves the uh, it, it, it does it's makes the uh, serve, serve come through faster and the same in madrid as well the, to a lesser extent uh, all, always in those three venues the whole percentage is much higher than the average for that relevant surface so I don't really. I'm not, but that shows that I do understand the reasons why. But I'm, don't, I'm not really interested in the reasons why. I'm just looking for a trend that can be exploited. Um, court, it's important for for people maybe who don't follow tennis that regularly to understand that the authorities use quite generic descriptions about courts. So a hard court, they'll say, oh, okay, the events played in a hard court. But what they don't tell you is that there's several court manufacturers as well who who manufacture that hard court and each will have their own tendency. They also don't discuss necessarily the fact that they're using different types of balls at one tournament and not at another tournament, and that they also have their own tendencies as well. But all rolled in together with you know, the, the atmospheric conditions and, and the court manufacturers and the ball manufacturers, then it comes out that more often than not, it's the same tournaments who have a higher percentage of whole, whole uh, service holds and also a higher percentage of aces served as well which is another good marker uh, compared to to other tournaments which don't so you can make clear assumptions and those numbers can be reflected in projected whole percentages as well um and that's the, the, there's those things are very very important to note and i think that a lot of people don't appreciate quite how important that they are so how do you go about quantifying these different pieces? Because obviously, you know, we know that Nadal's very, very good on clay, for example, mm-hmm. and all this type of stuff is probably clear. But I guess the hardest part and what makes it so interesting is that you need to try and put a value on them. How do you think about, you know, assigning different values? Obviously, it sounds like whole percentage is one of the key components. That's one of the main pillars you use. Is it mm. going through individually and assigning values to different variables? That's pretty much exactly it. So I'll look at... I'll look at each player's statistics on their, that that relevant surface, and Nadal obviously is has got better stats on clay because it's his best surface. So it kind of draws its own conclusion. That it's corrected by just by definition, basically. So his stats are pretty much every year are much better on clay than they are, say, on hard court, and in particular the faster conditions as well, which would be grass or indoor hard. So yeah, these things are automatically reflected in the numbers that I can then plug into to to the model, which would then generate prices and project whole percentages, etc. And what about subjective factors? How do you go about thinking about those? Whether it's you know momentum and fatigue and some of these things that are very very difficult to quantify. I think momentum a lot of the time is a bit overrated. I mean, tennis is as well as other sports is is a sport of quite fine margins, and and you know a a shot that on a break point, which is millimetres out, on another day it could be millimetres in and the match has got completely different, it's heading in a completely different direction. Momentum uh, as well in terms of tournaments and form, I think a lot of the time it's really quite, it, it can also be described as positive variance. That, you know, key point uh, conversion or saving break points, for example, is is key 
in looking when looking at short-term momentum and form. I think a lot of it's quite overrated. Fatigue is an interesting one. So um, you, you've got two different types of fatigue, really. You've got the short-term fatigue, which might be a, a guy's won a tournament and he's played like five matches in six days and then he's had to fly off and play first round in another tournament. Well, I'm assuming that that guy is going to be more tired than the average player, whereas the market actually often interprets it as more of a positive and will say, okay, well, the guy's banging form well. We disagree there somewhat often. Um, but then you've also got the longer-term fatigue as well, the second type of fatigue, which, for example, would be afflicting dominant team. So for those of you guys who are unaware, dominant team is a, a top 10 Austrian ten, tennis player in the ATP top 10. And he has a coach who basically pushes him, pushes him, pushes him. And I think he likes pushing himself as well, trains a lot, he plays a lot. And the problem is, is that if you look at the schedules of every single other top 10 player, practically, especially the elite four, historically, Murray, Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal, they all play much fewer tournaments than, say, anyone outside the top 10. And what they also do is that they avoid cross-continental travel in quick succession as much as they possibly can. So, for example, if Federer is playing a tournament in uh, Australia or America, there's no chance that he's going to play a tournament in Europe the following week. Absolutely no chance because he understands the effects that it has on his body. Team does not understand this. So he'll play, I think in, in, in February this year, he played three tournaments in consecutive weeks in three different continents. And there's absolutely no way that, that, that that's beneficial for the guy. And if you look at his results post-US Open, so in September, October, November, every year for the last three years, when he's been ranked in the top 20 every single year, um, he's winning about 35% of those matches. That's it. And he's heavy favourite in practically every wow. single one. Yeah. So that's all due to the fact that he's played considerably more matches than other players and he's done a hell of a lot more travelling as well. So that's the long-term fatigue as well. Other quantitative, so subjective factors, um, head-to-head is something that, that needs to be factored into some extent, although it's really, really, really important to, to look a bit deeper than, say, a exact head-to-head scoreline. So I'll give you some examples. So yesterday we saw at Tour Finals, um, Federer played against Jack Sock. Well, Federer went into the match uh, 3-0 leading head-to-head, 6-0 leading in sets. You'd say that's pretty dominant, but then Federer is a heavy favourite in every single one of them, so you'd have to bear that in mind as well. However, what we'd also say is that looking at the match stats for those matches, Sock had only created two break points on Federer's serve across six sets, which is woeful. So it looks like he finds it really hard to deal with Federer's serve. And in fact, in yesterday's match, 6-4-7-6, it sounded close, but Federer had all the break points. Sock didn't have a single one. So Sock actually now had two break points in eight sets against Federer. So I'm assuming now that Federer, uh, Federer's serve is just too hot to handle for Sock, or he can't get a good read on it. And, and you, you would then be able to factor that into some form of calculation as well. What I don't like is when the media trot out head-to-heads as if it's like some meaningful statistic, like leading 3-2 or 2-1 or 1-0, even 2-0. It's absolutely irrelevant. Yeah. Like I say, tennis is a sport of, of, of thin margins. And, and actually, I know a player, an ex-player, he was, he was in the top 10 previously, and he's now retired. And he said to me that he had a negative head-to-head against one particular player. And I think he said it was 7-0 head-to-head deficit 
against one particular guy. But he said in those matches, he had like match point in two or three of them. He was like set and break up in a couple of them as well. And every single match was close. And he said he never went on court thinking he was beaten before that match started because he knew that despite how dominant the heads ahead looked, he was in, you know, he was in massive spots in a ton of those matches. So it's really, really important to look at the context of those head to heads. If it's like more than two, three years old, I'm not really giving it too much respect, particularly if one of the players has particularly changed his level in that in recent, more recent times. So it's really important to guard against uh, overvaluing head to head, but then also giving it the respect that it deserves at the right times as well. Let's talk betting. So once you've crunched all your numbers and you've you know evaluated the players and mm. the match and the conditions and everything else, and you probably spit out a price, what's your yeah. general approach to betting, or what's your strategy once you've done all that? What are you thinking about? Yeah, so generally, let's say you would you would have the raw data, and then you're going to look at creating a script for the matches. So by that, I would mean preparing yourself for various eventualities that the match would take. So, for example, uh, I'll have data on a player's ability to retain break leads, to recover break deficits, and, and, in, and in conjunction with looking at the established projected hole percentages and market versus model pricing that I've established prior to the match starts. And then also the match stats in play as well. And you can take a, take a view in play. And obviously you've got that preparation in advance with the script. So you know that if player X is leading player Y at a given point that you've established previously, then if, 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 if uh, the match stats also indicate that it's a viable, viable to enter as well, as well as that, obviously the, the preconditions that you've, you've established in advance the match, then you can then you can then enter the market. So everything's pretty settled for you in your mind heading into a match and you sort of know what to look yeah. for? Yeah, so I think it's really, really important to, to look at trying to to automate that process as much as possible because obviously human mentality is quite weak and it's easy to to if you don't have that script and be quite organized before the match starts to to deviate from a mentality obviously like you can be a, you know, a weak person mentally could be influenced by a commentator or, or posts on social media or, or there's yeah there's a lot of different different situations they could tilt because they've got they've got they've lost a, a several trades earlier in the day and then they put money yeah they throw uh, good money after bad so it's really important to try and avoid those situations and just try and be as sort of robotic as possible but then also be able to to react to the match situations um depend be sort of robotic and flexible i guess is the best way to describe it so are the markets relatively efficient uh, in tennis and maybe you know federer and adal versus a challenger match or a first round mm. grand slam yeah. match yeah, it's an interesting one. So basically, in gen- looking at a really general basis, a, a latter stage match in a high profile tournament, so for example, a Masters and a, or a Slam, will be a lot more efficiently priced and a lot more efficiently evaluated by the market uh, than maybe a first round in a 250 or a Challenger or even you know 500 level events. Generally speaking, the the, the market will become more efficient later on in the tournament uh, but by the same token it also kind of i think from my perspective at least from my point of view 
is more related it, it gives more too much credence to form so that's where where i i try and I look look for discrepancies is, is one one main area so generally speaking the more high profile the tournament the more high profile the players the more likely the matches to be efficient because more people in the market know about those players tendencies so take us through a typical day let's say it's uh french open day one you know you got inside yeah. courts with games playing outside courts yeah. there's a lot going on You've mentioned you sort of try and make things as, as automated as possible, but mm-hmm. just take us through, you know, you sitting down in front of probably four or five different screens. What's <laughs> yeah. that like? So Grand Slams is, is, is you picked an interesting, interesting day to anal- analyze straight away because Grand Slams, obviously, the, the first day of Grand Slams like, is utterly brutal. So for those who don't know, there's, assuming that all the matches are played, there's 32 men's and 32 women's matches on the first day of a Grand Slam, and then the same on the second as well. And after four days of a Grand Slam, 96 matches across in in each of the two tournaments are played. So pretty much that's ballpark three quarters of the matches are played in a tournament are played in the first four days. So it's impossible to cover every single match on that basis and in a grand slam as well like liquidity is much thinner because there's so the volume in volume of matches at the first few days is 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 so high so in a slam the key for me would be to focus on the particular matches that you feel that the edge is greatest on so don't look to cover every single match but just pick out the ones that you think that have got the high the highest uh, value from a trading perspective so you you make a short list of them after you. Of, I try with slams. I try the draws usually announced on like a Friday before a Sunday or Monday start. I think the French Open starts on a Sunday and every other slam starts on a Monday. And you have all the data in advance, so you can prepare the script well in advance, and then just looking to get immersed whenever it, you know when the situations dictate. But like I said, focusing on the matches that you think have got the most value is is key for for day one, day two of a slam in particular. What percentage of your bets? It sounds like, if any, are pre-game bets. Yeah, not many, not much these days. Um, there's a few, uh, but but not not much on the whole. Um, Was it always like that for you? No, because like I said at the start, when I would build the LO model, it was all pre-game, and then obviously with the account restrictions, etc. Then that's when I moved into more of a uh, a trading basis. So yeah, primarily primarily in play well what generally happens in tennis is that if it's not always the case but mostly is that if a player's value pre-match then that value will also be able to be interpreted in play as well yeah. so gen- generally speaking like the market will 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 be based on two different factors which is the starting price of the two players and the current scoreline and so therefore if the starting price is, i believe is out on a player pre-match then it's likely to be out on a player in play as well and then obviously you can take a view on that basis too so was betfair always around when you were doing even the lo model or was that something that sort of yeah yeah yeah, no, 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 yeah betfair was around then but like i said i was i literally was just focusing on a pre-match basis so okay. um when i was doing that it was i was obviously taking advantage of soft books prices where i could before i got restricted uh bet with pinnacle as well prior to their um exclusion from the uk market and just just basically whoever offered the best price i would and and available that was available at that time and i was able to get my given stake on i would use but i was also very aware of for example of of uh, bookmaker rules regarding 
retirement. And believe it or not, when I actually started, I emailed every single bookmaker asking for a copy of their retirement rules. <laughs> well, it probably makes a difference. You know, one or two yeah, matches exactly a year is a problem. Right, marginal gains. Yeah, so so for example, if, if a new player had like fitness concerns and stuff, then I might, might take a couple of ticks less uh, a given bookmaker if depending on what bet i would want to get on and i would try try and manipulate the system a few times like that and which well, you know pays pays off in the long term you know you put the extra work in and you you look for those marginal gains it, it usually reflects itself in the bottom line eventually so take us through a match if you're you know if you sort of you know allocate a match as a, a match you really want to get involved with what are some of your thoughts as the match starts are you picking Certain positions, are you are you hedging out of all your bets? Take us through sort of how you yeah. approach it. A lot of people will, will, and it sounds like kind of you as well from that question, will think that I'm in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, and it doesn't really happen like that. So more more so it'll be just picking like one, two, three positions in a match where, where you feel like your your edge is greatest and you, you're in and, and then ideally obviously if the trade goes your way then you're out and obviously if it doesn't go your way then you're going to want to have to hedge negatively at some point as well so it's, it's certainly not like a situation where, where i'm like i'm not scalping i'm not going in like all the time i'm just looking at, at the situations across across the match and like some matches you you might pre-identify various situations that the match wants to go that you want the match the sort of path that you want the match to take but it doesn't doesn't manifest itself and you might just have no entry on the match. It's 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 really difficult to specify amount of trades that you put in in a match, but but on the whole it's not that many. Okay, so you're more than happy to back your position or opinion even though or it may be pretty clear to you that it's going to change in a positive direction. You're happy just to stay on that? Yeah, yeah, so basically like generally speaking I, I um, a lot of the a lot of the trades that, that I like are quite momentum op- 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 I oppose momentum. So Generally, I find that, that I'm looking for players who maybe can't hold on to a lead, or or they they or the other way around, like they're going to bail themselves out of a bad spot if they're on serve, or or trading like very short term swings in tie breaks and stuff like that. So like opposing a, a dominant leader in a tie break where the risk is really really low, but the reward can be quite high uh, given situations, especially like a fi- final set tie break, for example. So there's. Generally speaking, like I said, I oppose momentum. I think it's overrated by both the market, and that's also something that that's very, very apparent in in the media and in TV commentary as well. So, if you look at if you watch tennis matches on TV, you find that there's one clear characteristic of of the commentator, and that is that they always want to look right. <laughs> so, because of that, they always overvalue the player who's leading. And so, therefore, they'll, they'll they'll give him all sorts of praise and credit where it's not necessarily due. And then the the player who's losing, they're, they're not going to focus on, or they're going to be a bit more disparaging towards. And then suddenly, um, the guy comes back, which hopefully I've called, and <laughs> the commentator then thinks they're the greatest thing since Roger Federer. So it's like. It's it's apparent with sort of society and like I said in the commentary as well. People want to be right, and people want, and that means that more often than not, they have to be out. They're looking to, you know, be side with the front runner. So, is there a feasible or viable corporate bookmaking market out there for in play, or are you always, you know, going to Betfair and going to exchanges to try? And- yeah, exchanges. I think is 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 where where it's at. Um, I think that there's definitely 
sort of steps that people are, uh, some, some bookmakers are taking to try and become a bit more, have operated with a bit more integrity regarding account restrictions and being you know, able to lay a bet as long as you're not arbing, which is, which is fantastic. So, I mean, but I, th I think it's going to be a long time before, before anything really sort of across the board in the market occurs. I think obviously we've got the the fixed loss betting terminals issues in in the UK as well at the moment, which is going to dramatically affect the or it has a potential to dramatically affect uh, the bookmakers model because they derive so so uh, such a big proportion of their profits from these uh, fixed loss betting terminals. The the if if the government was to considerably reduce the stake on them, which is being debated at the moment, then they would have to look to derive more income from their bookmaking side of things and therefore either just market and advertise just non-stop or they're going to have to look at the way that they operate and, and make those changes that where, where necessary. So I think it, it, we're in a bit of a fluid market. I still think that there's a massive, massive scope for, for competition if you're – but the problem is obviously with exchanges, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. So people aren't going to go to an exchange that has no liquidity. Yeah. So um, it's tough on that basis, but I definitely think that there's 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 scope for for more market entries and imp and an improved market offering from from a number of participants. So what would happen if Betfair was you know taxed or regulated out of the market? Would that just blow up in completely the whole sort of tennis trading situation? Yeah, there probably would be like uh, the new Black Friday, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, um, but it is what it is. Ever since, okay, so like I said earlier, ever, ever since I played machines, I had always, I always try and have a backup plan or future plans in mind because I think that that's that's just a smart thing to do. And oftentimes, I've found that in my life so far, I'm 38 now, that these backup plans are great to have and they serve me really well, but often they're not needed for many, many years. And with machines, I was always thinking to myself, right, okay, I need to need to get something sorted out because this could end in three months' time. But it it didn't really didn't really man itself, man itself, manifest itself for, for a decade or more. So often these times, these things aren't worth worrying about too much until they happen, as long as you've got a kind of backup plan in mind. Um, I don't see it happening, and I'll tell you why, because primarily the uk government are very keen to to maintain things that derive them considerable tax revenue so i don't uh, bookmaking or exchanges or however you want to describe it um derives them considerable tax revenue and therefore they're unlikely to change it so i want to talk staking and money management how much of your time do you spend on thinking about it with regards to you know bet sizing calculating your edge you know applying kelly for those who use the kelly criterion is that a key component of what you're up to okay so i don't use kelly strictly um and as a staking strategy generally it's quite an aggressive one so most people use like a, a derivative of it like a quarter kelly or something like that um primarily it, i i got served quite well from my poker background because in poker, to give, give give you guys a bit of a insight into how money management will be used in poker, um, cash games, they say that you should, the guideline is that you should have 40 to 50 buy-ins to play at a cash table. So, for example, let's let's say that you were having, you know, the, the buy-ins were, the buy-in would be $200, uh, 100 big lines, so the $1, $2 table, then your bankroll would need to be 8000 to 10000 to play at that stake. 
because because and then so the max if if you got stacked by someone you'd be losing like two to two point five percent of your bankroll so it's a very sustainable thing and in and the short-term variance doesn't hit you that hard and and i transferred that over to trading so basically um looking uh, when i first started with the the betting model i i, I looked to lose no more than about two to two point five percent of my bankroll on a given bet and i also did a similar sort of thing with with within play as well now so that's that's really really important that people have a good money management strategy because i get emailed countless times by people who don't and people even email me and say look look, they've only got 500 pounds to to invest but they don't want to win less than 100 pounds on a trade well that's the road to the poorhouse because everyone has losing runs so it's it's impossible for them to look to turn a trade unless they get insanely lucky early on early on in in their in their trading career um regarding like uh kelly like you said earlier obviously kept the the basis of kelly is that the more the more edge you perceive that you have the more you're going to stake and i kind of have like a kind of that's all factored into my scripts so it, it doesn't it doesn't it's not kelly but it's like my own version of it basically in the context that i need it to be if that makes sense yeah no that makes sense uh one more thing i wanted to touch on before i let you go Specialization. Could you be a you know positive expectation value tennis and football trader, or tennis and cricket, or can you even do it within tennis? I know there's a lot of matches and there's a lot of players out mm-hmm. there. There's obviously women's, there's men's, and there's challenges and all that sort of stuff. What's your opinion or thoughts on on the aspect of specialization? It depends, really. It depends how much time and and, and experience you have. If you want to throw at something, so tennis for me, like is is pretty pretty resource and time intensive so i'm spending hours and hours a day obviously obviously uh, in that world um i've looked at, at cricket obviously i said previously i looked at football i've also looked at darts a little bit as well um but to get yourself to a level where where you're extremely competent in that sport it does take a lot of time like, people say that you need to was it the the thousand or ten thousand hour rule of competence that people you know you have to yeah, you yeah. do something for a certain amount of time to, to and that's that's definitely true it's, it's, but obviously if you've got experience in one sport then there's definitely some transferable skills but i think it's really really difficult to i mean tennis is a, is a good sport because it's runs for 11 months of the year there's usually matches on every single day at, at um various times so it suits suits people who maybe don't have time to trade all day um but it's also quite demanding on those who do trade full time and or you know analysts or whatever. So it's it's um it's difficult it's difficult to to look at other sports, but I think maybe one sport maximum in conjunction with another sport would, would be ideal. So then obviously then you could look to look to do the other sport when there's less less, less of a schedule for your preferred sport. But I wouldn't. I, I, anyone, anyone who can trade like multiple sports, like more than two at the same time, hats off to them because I think it's really difficult. And um, you know, maybe they've got sources in other sports instead. Though, yeah, people give them a heads up, or or they've got like some some like team of programmers, like a, you know the um, sports sports hedge fund companies in London, for example, um, syndicates. They've 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 got people looking at all different sports for them, and they've they've got the resources, they've got the financial resources, they've got the time resources on that basis because they're employing people to do it. But an individual, I think it's really hard to focus on more than two sports. Um, obviously, in tennis, we've got the 
ATP, WTA, Challengers, ITFs. ITFs, and you've also got doubles as well. I, ITFs and doubles, the liquidity is really, really bad, so I don't really bother with even looking at them. Um, and Challengers, the liquidity depends considerably on whether the match is streamed and also the time of the day as well. So you can you, you can do with Challengers, ATP, WTA, all kind of in conjunction with each other, and that's I feel is absolutely fine. But like you say, it's, I mean, WTA and ATP is almost like trading two different sports as, as it is because there's such different dynamics in each one. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty busy world in tennis. Oh, yes. So 45 minutes of chatting, it all comes down to one thing. Who is Dan Weston's greatest tennis player of the last 25 years? <laughs> um, my God, that's, that's a really hard question to answer. Um I was I just think, I was thinking through myself and I thought oh yeah you mentioned Djokovic and, and obviously yeah. Federer and Nadal and all the Aussies out there know about Leighton Hewitt he's probably not in this discussion but there's a yeah, few decent players who have played Hewitt certainly yeah he's not not quite in that level but he was a great player obviously um, I think from the way that he carries himself and the success that he's had and the you know, number of slams that he's had across across all surfaces really apart from Clay Federer is is going to be tough to beat from that from that discussion Nadal um, obviously is, is completely out there as well but obviously the bulk of his success has been on clay um, so perhaps if, he, if, if, he'd, if he'd done a bit more in, in, on grass as well in particular um, then, then he, would, he would have more right but I would go with Federer but uh, pre-injury I was pretty convinced that Djokovic would overtake both of them so yeah. really really interesting to see how Djokovic comes back next season because if he's still got the fire and he's still got the he can maintain the level that he was prior to his layoff then I think he's going to usurp both of them one other thing before I let you go and I really appreciate you coming on Dan what resources do you look out for have you got any books or podcasts or newsletters things like that that may be interesting yeah. to some of the listeners not really. I, I look at, I read stuff on social media, like people's posts and stuff. And like, I'd rather read like an article than 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 a podcast or, or a book or other people's opinions on a match. So I'm more looking towards like reading about players and their interviews and stuff as opposed to to resources and stuff. Um, back in the day, I used to I used to look at forums and stuff quite a lot and. Um, there were some really good posters back in the olden days and they definitely helped me along with my pro my process. But nowadays I don't really look at a lot of that sort of stuff, but I just try and immerse myself in numbers and li I listen to, I listen to po the podcast I listen to would be more like betting focus. focus. So I found obviously your po podcast previously and I listened to a lot of them and I found that, that a lot of them did have transferable skills that I could look at or, or gave me new ideas to approach various problems that I didn't have before but on the whole like I don't find that there's that many great podcasts to look at so check out you but I don't really know know, know about many others really <laughs> so where can people find you on social media or obviously your website what's the best way for them to be in contact or see what you're up to yeah so basically um, I'm on Twitter at tennis ratings you can drop me an email anytime at tennis trades at gmail.com and check out the website which is www.tennisratings.co.uk awesome Dan thank you very much for your time it was great to have a chat about tennis and uh, much appreciated I really enjoyed it Jake take care this podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia the Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. 
It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.